Have you ever heard of Simple Practice? It's an electronic medical record system, aka EMR, let's just say it for short, that is so user-friendly, even I can figure out how to use it. Seriously though, y'all, they made it so, so easy. There's so much customer support and tutorials. They made it much less daunting whenever it was just little me starting my practice. And also they make it super simple and convenient for you to be able to add therapists if you decide you ever wanna grow. This was 100% instrumental in helping me when I was starting my practice. Using simple practice whenever I started my private practice definitely made the road, we'll just say, a little less bumpy. Check the link in the show notes to get yourself one free month of simple practice. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Speech Goods, a podcast where we showcase awesome SLPs doing awesome traditional and non-traditional SLP things. Myself and the guests on this show are here to talk about the goods, the bads, and the untamable parts of ourselves and our SLP careers, and how, despite the challenges of everyday life, have just done the dang thing, loving what we do. I'm your host, Danny Augustine. I went from burnt out, dissatisfied with my SLP job, to dusting off my big girl pants, sprinkling some determination in my 20 cent coffee, and starting my own debt-free private practice. Now, I love my work and career and wouldn't trade it for anything else. It was support and wisdom from others around me that helped me refine my why. In the show, I hope you find support and wisdom of your own. I'm going to need you to keep your hands and feet inside of the vehicle at all times and buckle your seatbelt because we have one of my faves, Katie from Every Voice Speech. Katie received her bachelor's of science degree in integrated language arts from Kent State University. After teaching eighth grade reading and language arts for four years, she received a second bachelor's degree in communication disorders and deaf education from Utah State University, and then went on to receive her master's of arts degree in speech language pathology from Kent State University as well. Katie contracts in the public school setting and is now the founder of Every Voice, a virtual speech therapy clinic providing therapy to residents of Virginia and Texas with more states in the works, just so you know. She has special interests in the areas of school-age language and literacy development, AAC, and pragmatic language therapy. So this conversation with Katie is just a prime example of all of the random yet glorious rabbit holes that we can get into on this podcast. Okay, so the original intention of this episode was to talk about the pros and cons of being a contract employee. And don't worry, we totally and 100% get into all of those. But in good old Danny speech goods fashion, and for anyone else who's ever listened to the show, you totally know this about me, uh, we could just get into talking about all the things. We got into a great conversation about women in the workforce, starting your own private practice, imposter syndrome, all of the things that a lot of us are facing every day. So I think you're not only going to get the value out of this episode that was originally intended for it to be with the sort of like topic of being a contract employee on a 1099 versus a W-2, but you're also going to get some other really good juicy nuggets. Katie even gives us some great insight into her perspective being a former teacher and having been a teacher, kind of seeing the therapist or the speech therapist coming in and out of the schools and things like that. So I think you're going to get some really, really great perspective and value and hopefully a few smiles out of this episode. Okay, Danny's going to stop talking. Let's go do the dang thing. Hello, 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 Katie. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I am fabulous. I'm so excited to have you on. So everybody, you just heard our bio with all the fabulous things. This is Katie from Every Voice Speech on Instagram. And then we chatted and we decided we were going to do a podcast episode together. Is that about right? Yes. I am so excited (laughs) to be here. (laughs) Yes. And everyone, this is a special episode of the podcast because we're still going to do like this sort of interview back and forth thing that we all know and love because Danny's nosy and I like to ask people questions. But we also have a very specific topic that we're going to address today. We are actually going to talk about contracting. 
because as a lot of you know, or if you don't know, you're listening to this episode. So kudos to you. We often in the SLP field, if you're working for someone else, a lot of times we might have the option to be a contractor or to be an employee. And so we're going to specifically talk about our experiences because I know I've been both. Katie, have you been both? I've been a contractor only as a speech therapist, but I've been an employee in previous careers. So I can relate to both. Yeah. Because you were, which we're going to get into this too. You were a teacher before you were a speech therapist. Yes, I was. So (laughs) we're going to talk to you guys a little bit about sort of, we're going to talk about some of the financial stuff and just like delve deep into it because I get a lot of questions about this in my DMs just to kind of give you guys some real life experience and some real life stories. So let's talk a little bit about like the financial pros and cons. So what are some things that you can talk to us about in your experience? All right, let's start with the pros. So the pros, the first one that most people know about for contracting is the hourly pay is typically better. And if it's not better, you need to go contract elsewhere. You need a new agency. And then you, you've got your flexibility. You get to come when you want. You get to leave when you want. I contract in a school and coming from teaching, I knew how much extra is involved there. You know, faculty meetings after school, after school IEPs. And as a contractor, I get to say, no, thank you. I'm leaving at three. I'm leaving at two 30. Like that's my contracted hours. So I think the flexibility, the just autonomy and the independence that it allows you and the hourly pay being higher are the the big benefit to contracting. But it, of course, comes with lots and lots of cons. And I had no idea what I was signing up for. I came straight out of grad school and I was shopping around for jobs and I had come from teaching. I taught four years as a reading and language arts teacher, and I went into debt to get this master's degree. And all these speech therapy jobs were offering me salaries that look very similar to what my teaching salary had been. And that was just not going to do it for me. I was not going to stare down this $60,000 in debt that I had just accumulated getting a master's degree to make the same or slightly above. So I found this contracting agency online and the hourly rate was amazing, but they didn't explicitly tell me what I was getting into. It was your, you know, hourly pay, but you can be hourly pay and be a W2, be an employee. So I didn't know until I'm looking over this contract and my mom actually goes, Hey, you know, you're going to take care of all your taxes. Right. And I was like, wait, what? So yeah, I didn't know what I was getting into, but the cons are the taxes. You pay more taxes. You don't have an employer paying, you know, their portion of some of your stuff. So it's all on you. You got to save for it all year because it doesn't come out of your paychecks. So you really got to disciplined about your savings and your budgeting and all of that, or you're going to get to the end of the year and owe so much money. There's no employer sponsored retirement plans. There's no PTO. There's no sick time. You take a day off because you're sick or you want to go on vacation. That's all money out of your pocket. I think those are the the major negatives when I think of contracting. I think that's totally on point. And another big thing is, and I always tell people to consider, even if you're at the stage where both of us are in private practice as well. And if you ever get to the point of like considering hiring someone, I hear these, that question too, like not just insofar as what job should I get as an SLP, but if I want to hire someone, if I have a private practice and I want to hire another therapist, employee versus contractor. And one thing, whether you're looking to hire someone or you're trying to get hired yourself, one thing I always try to tell people to think about is it's really about like the level of control that the employer has over you. So an independent contractor is independent. So you have more control over your time. You have more control over your schedule. Typically 
you do have higher pay, but your responsibility is higher. Just like with anything in this world, usually whenever more privilege, more responsibility, all that stuff. And then also an employee, you know, your employer has much more control over your schedule. You typically can't make as much as an employee, not because your employee is evil, but because you're costing them money. They have to pay a certain amount of your taxes. Not only do they take out your payroll taxes, that's why you fill out that W-2 form. Not only do they take out taxes for you, but they also have to pay taxes on your behalf versus when you are an independent contractor, you have to pay those taxes for yourself. Honestly, I kind of think of it as like probably like an eight or a nine-year-old kid versus being, you know, the 21-year-old kid who's living in the basement and going to college. Like that's what I think of. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of contractors, as soon as you said, you know what that makes me think of? I knew you were going to go there. And the contractors, at least in the school setting, I really feel are like the rebellious teenagers. The school tries to tell, we're having a faculty meeting. Uh, No, we're not. See you next week. (laughs) And I think that's dead on analogy. We are the 21 year olds who are going out all night. We're going to do whatever we want. Like I'll be there on Monday. Yeah, I'll be there (laughs) Monday, but I'm going to do whatever I want. (laughs) You're not the boss of me. (laughs) Yes. And at the end of the day, like, and this is how I view most things in life, even things with financial decisions. It's not like a right or wrong. It's about what's right for your situation. Um, Especially like as single women, typically will do something more of like an employee situation. I have friends that they wish that they could do contracting because they want the flexibility of the schedule but they need the benefits. They're single. And a lot of us that are married, not that, you know, a man's here to save us or whatever, but you know what I mean? A lot, like I'm able to get insurance through my husband's work versus having to rely on an employer for that. Absolutely. That was a huge thing because I am unmarried right now. So that is falling fully on me. I am paying my own insurance. And for a while that looked like doing non-traditional insurance, doing a health share plan where I was paying less, but I was basically covered for nothing. Like it would cover emergencies or, but anything routine, anything preventative was also out of pocket. So it's definitely something you got away. I think most of the women at the agency I work at are married. And the reason they're able to do this is because they're on their husband's health insurance and they're on their husband's, you know, they're able to save for retirement through their plans and stuff a little bit. Whereas all of that falls on me. So it's definitely something to weigh. And it's something I have to look at sort of every time every year and be like, is this still the best choice for me? Is it still serving me? Is the rate still making it worth my while? Because there are additional financial costs that come along with it. And I know for me, the first year I contracted, I didn't, like I said, I had no idea what I was signing up for. And the hourly rate sounded so good. And by the end of the year, I realized how much I was paying in extra taxes, extra insurance, extra, all this stuff. And that first year, it was not worth it. I should not have been at that agency contracting at the rate I was contracting at. And, you know, you live and you learn and we're better now. But, but yeah, there's a lot to consider in whether it's the right decision for you or your family or who be it. Would you mind sharing with us? Because I think that's a very real situation. Those are real things to consider. And I tell people all the time, should I take this job? Okay, sit down and do the math. What are they paying you for? And what, what duties are they paying for? What are they duties are they not paying you for? What benefit? How much is a health insurance benefit worth? Would you mind telling us, like, how did you navigate like that sort of, especially health insurance while being single and a contractor? Yeah. So the first few years I did a non-traditional health plan, it was covered under, you know, whatever law it is that requires that we have some sort of health insurance or you're penalized when your taxes come up. I don't remember what it's called. 
So that was the lower monthly rate. And I was only paying like 200 a month, but nothing was covered. Now I'm paying as a single person on the marketplace, get my own insurance. I'm paying, I think it's actually no deductible. I'm paying 400 a month. We need to talk. That's really good. It's so pretty how- good. It's a newer insurance company. So that probably weighs into it. And it's definitely got some stuff. Specialties not really covered or they have a higher copay, but for preventative and routine stuff, no copay. So it's a little higher monthly rate, but But yeah, it works out. So I've left the non-traditional world of health sharing and moved into traditional insurance now. I'll have to do an episode on this later on, guys, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. Does it have an HSA component to it as well? Am I mixing these up to do the HSA? You have to have a high deductible because that was one of my things I kept weighing because I wanted to get an HSA. I was weighing a high deductible health plan where I could get the HSA with it or this. My dad's a doctor. So he was like, if you can get a no deductible, that, that's the way to go. So I listened to dad on this one. And I think that's smart too, like getting counsel from other people who have been there. One thing that me and my husband, we just switch healthcare plan. For those of you who don't know, an HSA is a health savings account. It's so awesome. So you don't pay taxes on the money you put in, and then you don't pay taxes on the money you take out. I'm going to do an episode on that later. It's the best thing ever. And there's so much you can spend that money on too. Like it's pretty flexible. I've seen at the end of the year, people talking about you can buy toothpaste with it. Can't you like anything that's even remotely medically related or health related you can put on there. So some of the stuff, wait, what? I can use this money for that. Like I buy that every month anyways. I see a chiropractor every week because your girl's body's all jacked up. She's private pay. Knowing that I see her every week, like I can pay her with my HSA. I know you can even pay. A friend of mine pays for her massages with her HSA. The way my husband and I looked at it, praise Jesus, we don't really get sick that often. Like neither of us have like chronic illnesses or things like that. So we really only use our preventative, like our yearly visits. We really don't use it for other stuff. We also, we don't have children. If we had kids, we probably would have made a different choice just because kids tend to get sick and bump their heads and bust lips open and things like that. But for us, that's why we decided to just go with the high deductible plan because our preventative was covered. And for the very few times that we actually do go in to see someone, we can pay out of pocket with tax-free money which means it's basically like at least 25% off. It's on sale. (laughs) It's essentially free money. Yeah, for sure. I'll have to do another episode at some point about that, but just to kind of give you all some insight. And thank you for sharing that because I do hear that a lot. I'm single. I feel like I had to be married in order to take a contract position because I feel like a lot of us want the flexibility. That was something that I knew I did not like about being an employee was being like handcuffed to this place. Cause that's what I, part of why I went into speech was like to have that flexibility and that independence. Yeah. I think the flip side is with flexibility, at least in contracting also comes sort of uncertainty. You've got that flexibility, but if something terrible happens, God forbid you're, and you have to be out of work for a while, that's no one's problem by your own. Your employer does not have to help you out in any way. Sometimes there's contract work through my agency and sometimes there's not. And then I think we were going to talk about it, but like COVID, that was a huge issue for a lot of the contractors and something you think speech therapy, job security, of course, there's going to be contracting. They're always going to need us. There's never enough. And then COVID shut down and there was no clear cut rules about what was going to happen and who needed seen and who needed therapy. And did the contract still apply because school's not in session? And that was a several month period where it was just total uncertainty and had no idea what was going to happen. So 
Flexibility is great, but yes, yes. Uncertainty, (laughs) not so much. Everything comes at a cost, but honestly, I think COVID showed us that nothing is for certain. The private practice owner, she can't print money. You know, it's not, she's evil or whatever, but I mean, they weren't having very many sessions. So these people that were on salary, they basically got, she had to furlough a couple of people. And then the staff that she was able to keep, she essentially put them on a contract rate where they would get paid per session. And these people were technically employees, but I mean, the money has got to come from somewhere. So you went through COVID as a contractor. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? It was a journey. We'll say that. So we're at school Thursday. I think like Wednesday, Thursday is when we all started hearing the rumbles like, oh, so-and-so shut down the school for two weeks. And our admin and school board were saying nothing. Mom was the word. And even that Friday when everyone was going home, it was still, you know, nope, we will be at school on Monday. Everything will be fine. The kids dismissed for the day. And then all of our emails are like, ding, 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 ding. And we got the emails that we were shut down for two weeks. So like, okay, two weeks, that sucks. Losing two weeks of pay. That's not great, but no big deal. And then as we all know, school was done for the year, basically everywhere. So it was, it was probably the scariest time of my life financially because there was nothing. The, my contract agency had no answers. The school had no answers. The government had no answers. No one had any answers while everyone was scrambling to figure out what the rules were going to be about servicing these kids with IEPs that obviously give me my job. I was just left to sort of hang out. It did turn out fine. Things were okay. After a while, the, as you know, probably the unemployment stuff ended up being extended to freelancers and 1099. I ended up getting a teeny bit of unemployment, but my big saving grace was the PPP loan that the government had to bail out the small businesses as a contractor. You're essentially your own small business. So that's what paid the bills during COVID closure. Then eventually the government did decide that, Hey, we do have to do something with these kids. We were given very limited hours to work. We had our case subs and they're like, okay, so we've decided you're going to see them for X percent of their typical minutes. And you have five hours a week to do this. And if you need more, you have to talk to us and get it approved. And, and it was a whole thing. So it ended up, we were seeing kids, but then there was meetings and addendums and paperwork and all that. And they didn't want to approve the hours to pay us to participate in those things. So it was a very stressful experience. So they didn't pay you even before COVID y'all were not paid for meetings. Y'all were only paid per session. Is that how it was? No, I'm actually pretty lucky. I know a lot of contract companies, that's how it works. And I'm paid for whatever happens within those seven and a half hours. So if there's meetings, if I have no kids show up for therapy, doesn't matter, but that is not totally typical. And then I am paid for limited after school paperwork and stuff as well. So Mm -hmm. I went from having a minimum of seven and a half guaranteed hours a day to see my caseload to having five hours a week to see my whole caseload and do related stuff. And yeah, that's definitely a reality. Like when fit hits the shan in these types of situations, (laughs) they're going to protect and look out for their employees first. Again, go back to the example of the five-year-old and the 21-year-old. There's a family emergency or something happens to family who they go kick out the house first. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. That's kind of, I feel like the other lesser known con that I don't even think of as much is like you said, in family, if there's a catastrophe, you're going to go save that five-year-old and the five-year-old gets babied and stuff. And it's a perfect analogy, but there's definitely almost like a me versus them. Like you feel the difference working in a school, being a contractor versus being an employee. It's harder to fit into that community and feel like you're part of the team because they know 
that you're kind of allowed to do things that they're not allowed to do and stuff. I'm very interested on your perspective on that because you've, I've been a school employee and I've been a contractor and I 100% know what you're talking about. Like when I was an employee, like I was very much like, we're in this together. These kids are insane, but we're camaraderie. And then contracting was very much like, oh, I get to do what I want. Come and go as I please. Like I had multiple schools. So I wasn't even at school every day. But can you comment? Because I feel like you have a good perspective because you were a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so like, especially how contractors are viewed, like, did you ever have any contractors come to your school while you were a teacher? Things like that. We actually, I don't remember having contractors. I can't speak to how I saw contractors because I don't remember them being there, but I do think being a teacher and I was much more a part of the group as a teacher. And I felt much more of that strong community vibe. And I think a lot of it is because teachers sort of bond over, like you're in the trenches together, you know, you're suffering through the craziness and the state testing and all of that together. And everyone's being made to do the same things. And I think part of why it's harder to fit in as a contractor is because a lot of the things being put on the teachers and a lot of the things they're being asked and expected to do with reward are things that you're allowed to say no to. In that way, you don't have as much of that stuff to bond over kind of because you have the autonomy to opt out of it, which is great to an extent. But sometimes I do miss, we're all in this together vibe that you were talking about. So how do you helped with that, like help with the camaraderie, like even though you are a contractor. The thing that's helped me the most with getting the employees and the teachers and the SPED staff where I am to see me as part of the team is just advocating for the kids and like being there with them fighting for the kids. We've had a lot of cases come up this year and I think COVID and like the missing service, that whole break in the school year last year sort of brought a lot of things to light. So there's been a lot of kids to sort of to fight for, to get through for evals or to get more services or to do this, that, or the other thing. And I think that's helped me a lot this year. I feel a lot more part of the community this year because they're seeing that I'm not just clocking in and clocking out for a paycheck, doing the bare minimum. Like I am still in this with you guys. I want to get the best for our kids, just like you do. I just want to do it when my day ends on time, (laughs) but I think that's it. I'm just kidding. But I think that's the part that's helped the most. I think it took longer to earn their trust for sure. But I think now that I have it, they see that we're on the same page. I think the other thing that helps too, that I'm kind of reluctant to say, because it's a slippery slope is do it like attending some of the extra things that you as a contractor don't necessarily need to do, but just showing that you're a team player, you know, we don't get assigned things like bus duties or lunch duty, because that's not what you're paid hourly to do. You know, they're paying you to do therapy, not to stand in the cafeteria and monitor kids. But if I do have free time helping out with those things and doing those things also goes a long way to showing them I'm part of you guys. I'll do the not so fun stuff as well. I did the exact same thing. Like I was actually in a contract position for my CF year. Like you talked about confidence what CF is confident? Let's be honest. (laughs) Although all of the crud that you have to go through to be a speech therapist and you get out of school and you're like, what? But anyways, (laughs) yeah, no, I can relate. I was a contractor for my CF too. And it's, we're going to support you so much. You're going to have a supervisor. She, but as a contractor, what you quickly find out as I'm sure you did too, is that half the time they don't know. I don't know where you contracted, but contracting for in the schools they have therapists in so many different schools. So you call them with a question. They're like, oh, wait, uh, I don't know how that district does that. I don't really, oh, I don't know. We'll have to, I'll call someone. 
And at the end of the day, you're just solving all your own problems because it's easier for me just to walk down the hall and figure it out myself than to wait for them to call whoever they're supposed to go through and figure out the answer. So I feel your pain with the contracting during your CF because it's all the normal stuff that you're figuring out on top of all the administrative political stuff that you got to figure out in the schools with no one sort of taking you under their wing. It feels like honestly, going back to what you said about trying to become part of the community, I think it benefited me in a way. Like I've never been someone who needs, like, it would have been nice to have that guidance, but I mean, my supervisor was not on site. And I mean, my supervisors are great, but she wasn't on site. Like she had her own caseload. Like she had her own, she was like on the other side of Houston, which if any of y'all know, Houston independent school district, I think is the largest school district in the country. That's where I did my CF. But I will say like having to figure things out on my own, like it made me go meet people, which definitely benefited me. Like getting to know the office people, just like what you said, like little things, like remembering it's their birthday. Taking the time, like every time I walked in there, I would say good morning. Like you'd be surprised how powerful that is. If you just walk in with a smile, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning, Miss So-and-so. Remembering people's names, that goes such a long way. And then just like you said, it could be a slippery slope. Like you definitely don't want to put the expectation that you're always going to do that. Like even now, like I go into daycares, I try to get a good relationship with all the workers there. Um, I've even gotten referrals. If they see that a kid needs speech therapy, like they'll be like, oh, I know Danny, blah, blah, blah. But there's been times where I have to go. I'm on a schedule. I have this kid and I need to leave at this time because I have to drive 10 minutes to go see this kid. And, and I've been asked like, hey, can you watch my class while I go to the restroom? And I've had to say no. I've talked about people pleasing a lot, like on my Instagram page and stuff like that. Like there are times where I have to say no just because... I got to go. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. You got to stick to the boundaries sometimes as hard as it is to do. Yes. Just because it's not that you don't want to help. Not that I don't want to do all these things, but like you said, it's it's a slippery slope because if you set that precedent, then you're going to be expected to do all those things all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's not always what you're supposed to be doing during your contract. It's not allowed to stay after for XYZ meeting. That's not what they're paying me to do. So I want to do it, but I can't set that precedent because I got to protect my boundaries and the agency's boundaries that have been set forth. But I feel you, it's hard to say no, especially to people you want to be in a community with and that you want to like you. And you're like, Oh, I find like, you can't walk in there on your high horse because honestly, like if I was not super friendly with like all the registrars at the schools that I went to, my life would have been so difficult because there was so much that I didn't know. And at that point in time, like I didn't have a ton of guidance on those things. And so being kind to people, it's not like you have to go take on all these extra responsibilities. Take the time. If they brought cake for so-and-so's birthday, go in there and say hello. There's a few times like I contributed $3. They put a thing together for people's birthdays or so-and-so's husband was sick. I give the $3. So I found it helpful to participate in the things that still show that I cared. I'll give a couple bucks for the birthday cake, try to go like social things that they were having at school, but trying to do less of going to meetings I didn't necessarily need to go to. That way, like it wasn't an expectation. I still did a few of those things, but again, I tried to do more like social stuff. I agree for sure. I think it's hard. It's like a lesson I had to learn because you come in and no one knows who you are and they're Mm -hmm. used to, sometimes they're used to a new contractor coming in every year. So they're not always going to put the effort forth to get to know you either sometimes. And I think I came in 
one of my years contracting and just sort of like stuck to myself and I wasn't mean or anything, but I wasn't going out of my way to go to those things. They'd have teacher appreciation luncheon. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm like welcome at this because I'm a contractor, which is so silly. Like, of course I welcome at it. And you have put yourself out there to be the warm and friendly and get to know everyone person. Like you said, you have to sort of take the initiative to get their names right and to remember important things and maybe, you know, bring some cookies one day that you bake type of thing so that they know like, oh, okay. Like she may be in and out like all the other contractors eventually, but, but like, she does want to be a part of this community and you're right. A little bit goes a long way in feeling part of the team. And I think it benefits our kids as well. When you have a good relationship with the teacher and you come in with suggestions, if you come in on your high horse and you need to do this, 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 and this, them teachers going to look at you like, what, what woman that's never here? Bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. For real. <laughs> I think that was one of the, like, there's a couple benefits to coming into speech pathology from teaching, but I think that's one of them is I already knew what teachers were like. And I already know that you do not come in like that. They know their kids better. They know this school better. They know what's happening. So do not come at them like that. And it's helped me work better with them in that way. You got to view them as a team. You cannot come in there telling them what's up. 100%. Cause I mean, teachers, like they have a very difficult job. They already have so many things that they have to do. So many responsibilities. A lot of times they got like 30. How many kids did you have in your class? Like 30? Oh my God. Yeah. When I taught, I had a class up to 33. I was in like urban Dallas area. Yeah. And my biggest class was 33 kids. And it's a lot. One of the things I miss about teaching is the community you can build by seeing the same group of kids five days a week. We had block scheduling, so I'd see them for 90 minutes. And there's so many of them. There's so many different personalities. Community bond that you don't necessarily get in speech seeing kids, you know, maybe 30 minutes once a week, but it's a lot. It felt like crowd control sometimes because there are just hormones flying around that room. X, Y, Z is having a bad day. This kid's having a great day. This kid just had her first kiss. This kid's mom and dad are getting divorced and like just managing the academics and the emotions in those classrooms is so much for teachers to be asked to do on top of their job. And I think the culture of teaching too which is so admirable. And it's so easy to get caught up in the almost like glamorizing the overworking, you know, but the culture of teaching is that you are expected to do the most. It's expected that you stay after school and help the kids if they need it. It's expected that you tutor after school. Everyone's in it for the kids, of course, but it's so hard as a teacher. Cause if you're not doing those things, if you're setting boundaries, like, Hey, my day ends at three 30, I have to go then you're looked at like, but the kids need you after school to tutor them. How are you not going to stay after school? And see how teachers hardest job. I went into debt to get this master's degree and change careers for a reason. Cause it just, for me was not sustainable to teach forever. Oh yes. Like talking about boundaries, that teacher culture is more extreme than the SLP culture. A lot of us have that like people pleasing, like it's expected of you. Okay. We're going to meet our productivity. We're going to do this, do this, do this. A lot of us, we follow the rules. If you haven't noticed about me, that really isn't my style. That's why I just started my own business. But anyways, yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah I'm not so good at the rules either. That was yeah. probably another problem with the teaching thing. Yeah. There's too many people telling me what to do. <laughs> right. Right. And then like, you're looking at these kids. Like I know these kids better than you do. Get out of my face. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's so hard to say no, because it feels like if the teachers don't do it, who will, if the kid needs something, where else do they get the help? Especially in that I worked in an urban school district and stuff. There's extra things to consider kids whose parents 
are not so involved, who have to work the whole day to provide for their family, who have, you know, six other siblings at home, that they're taking care of as soon as they get home. And so hard to know those things and be like, but if I don't help you, who's going to, because your mom's at work, your dad's on the night shift. You've got four kids at home. Like you can't go home and teach yourself this poem that I need you to understand. And it's so hard to just be able to say no, because it's such a noble cause to keep saying yes to them. But to me, like it's even out teaching speech pathology, it occurs very definitely more in teaching. That's why I, I couldn't be a teacher. God bless y'all. It's ridiculous to me. Like there's this expectation that you're supposed to like overwork yourself for no money. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I agree. And if you're not overworking yourself, if you're just doing what you're contractually obligated to do, at least, you know, where I've worked, I feel like those teachers are sort of looked at almost negatively. Like, yeah, why won't she stay in tutor? Everyone else is doing it. Or like, why can't she? Oh, I don't know. Because she has a family at home to go take care of or not everyone can stay at school late, but in teaching, it seems to just be, and speech sometimes too, you know, it's just, you're expected to do these things for the kids, but you're right. The pay is already not so great in education. And then to do all these extra things, if someone sat and tallied up all the extra duties and extra hours and extra tasks that people in the schools do outside of their hours, it would probably be insane to look at their pay. Oh yes. 100%. It's just fascinating to me how like I talk about this within the field of SLP as well, because we hear, you know, we hear burnout and we hear all this type of stuff. And when do we get burnout? We're overworked and we're not paid for it. Like (laughs) (laughs) we're not paid for it or like not doing work that we love. We're too busy meeting productivity standards. And it is the craziest thing to me. And I think that's something, and that's part of even why I started this podcast is like to look inside of ourselves and say like, why have we accepted this? Why have we accepted this as the expectation, as this is just the baseline? Like you are expected to work yourself to death and not get paid very well for it and smile about it. Now, talk to me. Do you think that would happen in a male-dominated profession? I was thinking the same because no, it wouldn't. On that subject, there's been so much talk about imposter syndrome as well in the speech field because we're expected to know everything, be everything, be experts and everything, have all the answers because usually we're the only ones in the building. If you're in a school, you know, who else are they going to ask the question to? But I think about that all the time. Every time that creeps into my head, I'm like, you know, who would not be questioning their abilities? Every man I know, you know, who would not be hesitant to ask for a raise? every man I know. And he'd probably be asking for $20 more than I asked for. They just don't do that the way we do. And it sucks to say, but you're right. That's probably, we just want to help. And we live in this society where we've sort of been conditioned to helping career. You're not in it for the money. You're in it for the kids. Yeah. But like, can we be in it for both? Right. And also I like to look at it from a point of history, like us even being able to go open our own bank account. Like we've only been able to do that for like what, 50, 60 years now? That's crazy to think. Probably more like 60. And there's this like interesting cultural shift because, you know, back in the day, like think like the 50s. Think June Cleaver. She's at home, you know, husband goes to work. June Cleaver's at home vacuuming, making sure everything looks perfect, cooking all the meals, doing all the housework. And husband goes and brings home, gets most work, brings home the bacon. Now there's this weird cultural shift where like women are still expected to do all of those household duties and work a full-time job. Yeah. Like you realize like this whole dynamic of women doing all the housework, that was whenever women did not have full-time jobs. (laughs) Yeah. It's not sustainable. No. 
and I don't have kids. I got two dogs and sometimes they feel like having kids, but I don't have kids. And even I find it hard to stay on top of those things just myself. Like it's hard for me to keep this place thick and span and have meals prepped and go to the gym and get out for fresh air and do all those things on top of a nine to five and trying to, you know, build a business. It's like, it's not sustainable. It's got to keep shifting. Okay. I'm just going to like call it what it is. This was probably tense tangent I've ever been on in this podcast. <laughs> I was thinking the same but thing. I love it. Not my place to say anything, <laughs> but I love it. Like I could talk about that all day, Yeah. but you know what? We're going to ring this in. Okay. Danny's going to come back. I could talk about this all day. You yes. did mention you <laughs> starting a business. So yeah. tell us again, this is Danny just ringing it in. Everybody just stick with me. This is just a crazy ride you're on. If you're on the Danny train. <laughs> yes. So I definitely, this is something I wanted to get to talk about is you've started your private practice, right? Yes. When schools were shut down for COVID and everything was all up in the air, you know, I saw an opportunity and I very slowly like dipped a toe into the pool of private practice with all that downtime. And I got the business license, got the LLC, you know, did all that fun stuff. And then I think January of this year, I officially launched the business and it's been a ride, but it's going great. I'm primarily virtual right now, but I've just started seeing in-person clients too. So I know some states are opening up before others and things like that. Tell us, did having a contract position play a role in you deciding to go into private practice? Tell us about that. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about it, but contracting, you're on your own a lot. They're not in the trenches with you. So those supervisors and the agencies, they don't have the answers for you. They're just sort of, they secure the contract and then have fun, sink or swim. So I think after a few years of that, I think it really helped me gain the confidence to be able to see what they're doing. Be like, I can do that. I've basically been running the show myself for a few years as it is. The only thing you're doing is, you know, doing the paperwork. So yeah, I think it helped a lot learning how sort of the business side of things work and having the confidence to dive in. Tell us a little bit about like what your private practice looks like. I am contracting in the school school time through the agency, but that is still through my private practice. So my agency is technically contracting my business to see those kids in the school now. And then I am taking on my own clients in the afternoons, evenings, and seeing them when I get home after school. Summer's coming. So hopefully it's going to be a little less hectic, but right now that's what it looks like. I come home and I, I see virtual clients. And when school ends in a couple of weeks, I will be seeing clients in their homes as well. Are you private pay or insurance? I am private pay. I'm hoping to kind of avoid that whole insurance thing. It seems like a monster. I am not ready to tackle right now. Maybe you can speak to it a little more. Are you private pay or are you insurance? I am insurance, but I am okay. only a network with Uno One insurance company. And that ain't changing anytime soon. Right. So you probably know more than I do for sure. I know that the benefit of having insurance would be building a caseload probably easier and quicker because you get those people who are in network and they can find you. And it sounds like quite a headache. I'm in these Facebook groups and the people are always stressing about insurance being rejected for reimbursements, all these things. And so I'm just going to tackle one thing at a time. And will I probably take insurance later down the road when I, but right now it's going well, private pay only. And that's what I'm going to stick to for the time being. Oh, if I could do only private pay, I totally would. Why don't you? Is it just the nature of where you're located? Yeah. And I'm, If I really wanted to, I totally could. It's just, to me, it's not worth it. And that I was already very familiar with the insurance company that I'm in network with. And I knew that they weren't a huge headache. 
I'll put it that way. There's like a couple other insurance companies around here that I know are terrible that pay you like 60 bucks a session and take six months to pay you after they've asked for like the paperwork. Like they want to know your shoe size when you had your last ball movement. I'm like, look, (laughs) just give me my money. Okay. Yeah. So I think the big part of why I went ahead and decided to do insurance is because I already was very familiar with one of the most popular insurance companies in my area. And I knew that they weren't going to give me a bunch of bull dinky. That's a more professional thing to say instead of bulging. I'm sorry. <laughs> and also my area is very oversaturated with speech pathologists. There's like five grad programs within a 50 mile radius. So you can't find a PT or an OT, but by good golly, Ms. Molly, you're going to find an SLP. Now I will say one thing is that it is hard to find someone who's very specialized and niche in this area. And that's another reason why I was able to kind of grow my caseload quickly But yes, it's basically like we have a lot of hospitals. We have a lot of big clinics. There's just all of, I personally didn't really want to take on the the uphill battle of private pay in this particular area. And I was like, I know this insurance company, it reimburses well. There's only been a couple of times where I've had denials and I've had to call, but it really hasn't been bad, like at all. Maybe that'll give me some confidence to do it later. Hearing your positive testimonial. Well, you don't have to, like if I, there's an episode hasn't aired yet, but Tara Sumter, she's great. She has a private pay only practice. Hallie Balkin's private. I, was pay say, only. I listened to Hallie's episode. Yes. They do a lot of talking about private pay. I think you really need to look at your area. My area is very strange. Like Baton Rouge is weird. You'll have million dollar houses on one street and then two streets over you have like low income housing. Baton Rouge is really weird. They actually did a news story about how like within like a five mile radius, we have the richest and poorest people in the state. It's really weird. But anyways, so yeah, researching your area and see like if you could sustain, if you could grow private pay that way, which if you've already got private pay clients, you probably can. Also, like I already knew about the insurance company that I do contract with. Yeah. I'm new to the private practice part of it, but as far as what I see in the schools, there's a major shortage of SLPs, which is why it's so easy and why contractors have such an incentive here because they need us. So that gives, you know, negotiating power to the agencies. But yeah, as far as the private practice, private pay thing, I think there's a market for it here because I'm picking up clients pretty consistently for a while. There was one new client a week. And then all of a sudden I had three consult requests in the last 24 hours. So if I don't have to go down the insurance route, I guess I'm not going to. I will ride this train as long as I can. Yes, definitely. And that one thing I tell people all the time, like if if specialized in something is of interest to you, that's another really great way to market yourself. But then again, if your area has a significant shortage of speech pathologists and every other clinic in the area has got a six-month wait list, well, then there's your market, baby. Love it. Love, love, love it. So what's your plans for next year? Like, do you want to build a caseload of just all private pay? Do you want to start contracting with the school, like without an agency, like what are you kind of sort of hoping to do? I think kind of a combo at this point, I have enough clients that I could drop from five days a week with the agency to four, which is awesome already. You know, the plan is to fully work for myself. So my plan is to keep building the caseload so that I can stop working for someone else. Essentially. That's the dream. And long-term, I would love to be able to hire contractors myself and contract out to the schools, you know, my services and maybe, you know, dream big one day, contract out my contractors to the schools. Like how I started, I'm licensed in several different States right now. So it seems silly not to consider that, you know what I mean? I can only see so many people and I can only grow so much just me, 
But if I've got all these licenses and connections to these states, then I think I'm going to try to use them down the road for sure. Definitely. And you you brought up a great point of if you want to diversify your income, if you want to increase your income in private practice, there is no ceiling on your income. If you're willing to hire, you can grow as much as you want. You can stay as small as you want. A lot of women make this mistake of when someone gives you an offer, you just take it. Take it. And there are times where someone gives you a really, really good offer and you're like, oh, like, oh, like that's awesome. I have seen that before, but you don't accept the first offer. And a lot of that stuff is negotiable. Like I think a lot of us, especially as CFs, like you said, you made that mistake as a CF. I was able to negotiate for a higher salary as a CF only because a friend of mine that was in a grad program with me, I loved her. She was an older student. She used to be like a banker, like loan. She was a total hoss. I loved her. And she was like, Danny, you have a master's degree. She's like, you are not going to accept that. I loved her. Listening to her, like she made me an extra $7,000 because I didn't just accept that initial contract. You still have to be tactful about it. But you can negotiate or whether you want to negotiate salary or you want to negotiate things like a non-compete, like just because they put that piece of paper in front of you doesn't mean you ain't got to sign it. No, I agree. It's my first year. didn't no negotiation. And now I never don't negotiate. Like, why would I not? Like my friends, when they're coming out of grad school or when I talk to, you know, newbies, that's where you start. Whatever you make coming out determines how high you can go, at least in that job. So you got to set yourself up for as much success as you can possibly set yourself up for what that base is going to be when you start out. And if you're in the schools and that means trying to get onto a different salary schedule instead of the teacher schedule being on the school psych and the PTOT schedule, then do that. If it outpatient, you're negotiating hourly, then do it. But you've got to shoot your shot and at least try to get it because you're doing yourself such a disservice. And you've probably talked about this, but I just heard something about how women over time by not negotiating, lose out on thousands, if not like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if they had made that and invested it. That's what I always think of too. It's like, it's not a dollar extra an hour that adds up over the whole year and then invested. That's so much more. So like even a dollar is worth fighting for, in my opinion. Yes, girl. Like a lot of us are over here. Like we haven't bought new draws in like forever. They said they got holes in them. (laughs) but you're not willing to go outside your comfort zone and negotiate, you'd cost yourself thousands of dollars not being willing to get out of that comfort zone. And again, like not saying you go be a, a turd about it. If you're kind of afraid of it and it's really out of your comfort zone, it's very unlikely that you are going to be a entitled turd about it. Yes. Entitled turd. I think I'm going agree. To, I think I'm going to brand that. I love it. But you know, it's amazing how like not getting out of your comfort zone ends up costing you a lot of money and how a lot of us, like we're so willing to settle for things like, Oh, well, I'm not going to go buy that outfit or I'm not going to go do this. And not saying you need to go into credit card debt for it or anything like that, but I'm not going to go do these things. But so you're going to sacrifice on those on that end, but you're not going to get out of your comfort zone to ask for a raise or to negotiate a raise or to negotiate a contract. That makes no sense. I was like that. Oh yeah. I definitely was like that when I was, you know, a little younger. And, but I think the more you do it, the more comfortable you get doing it too. So that first time it's like, Oh my God, I can't do this. I needed someone to coach me through every single step of it. I felt like I was going to burst into tears, calling someone to negotiate the first time, but what's the worst that happens? The worst they say no. And what we always forget, I think is they probably expect you to try and negotiate unless they do, right? Like the schools, maybe not so much because they have less negotiating power and stuff, 
but everywhere else they're purposely undercutting you because they're leaving room for you to negotiate. Like if they come in where they're actually willing to pay and you negotiate, they're like, now they're above budget. But if they come in under and you negotiate like, oh, now we're exactly where we want it to be. You're basically letting the big man win if you don't even try. I had a funny conversation and this was like with all of my grad school peeps, like when we were all applying to our jobs and I will never forget. Someone made the comment. I don't want to get the recruiter mad at me. And then (laughs) they make money off you. Yes. And then of course the girl who is like coaching us all, who's all of us are like in our early twenties. She was in her mid thirties walking around in the grad school building with her Louis Vuitton bag. Like she wasn't messing with nobody. Like she was great. (laughs) She was like, I know you didn't say what you just said. You realize they make money off of you. They're not doing you a favor. They're not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. It's their job and they're commission-based essentially. Yes. Like we need to stop. Yes. Like we need to stop acting like everyone's doing us a favor. Like, no, this is a job. They have a business. You realize that you are making them money. Like otherwise they wouldn't hire you. So they want to hire people. The same place I heard about that investment thing too. I heard they did some... I don't know if it was someone's firsthand experience at their job or if they had read an article, but there was this whatever job it was and people were coming up for their raises and women at the company were asking for like 70,000, 80,000. And men were coming in asking for like 120,000 for the same position. And the discrepancy just blows my mind because men are like, I'm entitled to this. I'm the best. I'm here to do a job. You owe me this. And we're like, well, I don't want to look greedy. So yes. instead of asking for this much, I'll just ask for this much. Like my last negotiation, I asked for 5% increase, which came out to like, I don't even know, but 5% increase. I knew I wasn't going to get it. I've got to at least ask for more than what I think they'll give me. And I know that I expect to be met in the middle. It's a smart play. You just got to overshoot mm-hmm. because you know, they're going to try to undershoot because it's in the best interest of their business. Keep that money in the business. Yes. There's a study too. It was basically something like women tend to underassume their performance. So say like you have, yes. you know, a man and a woman take the same test. They both get an 80%. They walk out of the room. The woman thinks that she got about a 60% and the man thinks he got a 100%. Now all of my men out there listening, I love men are great. We love I you. Love men. We love yes. You. <laughs> I married one, you know, it's not to demonize men or anything like that, but no. it's just like for us as, you know, this is a mostly female profession. It's just for us to like really understand what this is costing us. Why is it that, why is it that a man in your, with your same skill set is okay with ask for technically 40% more because he's doing 20% over and you're doing 20% under. What is it like in you that makes you feel like you can't make that much or that you can't be that successful? Yeah. And it's just to keep on the money and the finance studies, they did another study and They found that women who tried to negotiate on behalf of another woman got a better negotiation result than if they negotiated for themselves. So it's like, what is this pattern of undervaluing our worth and our performance and our skill set? And it's like, you got to go into it almost like women empowerment. Like we're negotiating for everyone. Like if you get that extra 10,000, when you start a new job, like you're raising the bar for all the rest of the females in this profession who are trying to get these salaries higher because they're not where they should be. And I encourage you to like think outside of the box. Like if you can't get your salary, like where you want it to be all about a side hustle or 
op- like having your own business, like whether yeah. it's a private practice or not, there's so much opportunity out there. First of all, you, we already have a valuable skill set as speech therapists. And th- I mean, that's why I started this podcast. Like I'm actually in a few weeks going to have someone on who is a speech therapist who has a business, a speech therapy business that is not even a private practice, but you don't even have to do private practice. A lot of us think of ourselves as caregivers and a lot of us have that caregiver heart. That's why we were attracted to this profession in the first place. Like we just, well, we want to help Oh, the babies and, and the old people and we just want to help them eat and talk and and oh, you know, someone so cried in our session because they finally got their R for the first. Like we yes. eat that stuff up, and I eat it up too. I <laughs> love course. it, and I think like that's part of what makes a lot of us good at our jobs is that we really do care and that we have that sort of caregiver heart. Like, like, and I've had moms tell me that that's like part of what they appreciate about me is like I love coming to you because I can tell that you really care about my child. Like my child just isn't another patient to you. He's not just here to fill your schedule. Like I can tell you really care. But there's a time for that. And then there's a time to negotiate and get your money. (laughs) You can be a caregiver and a bleeding heart and still run a business. Yes. Have both of those energies coexist in one thing. Yes. I know for me, like understanding what I need to do when and what's appropriate at certain times has been really useful for me because again, a lot of us as women, society places us in that caregiver role. And a lot of us want to be in that caregiver role. I don't think any woman should be forced into a caregiver role or forced into the role of motherhood or whatever. If that's what you want, I do have that sort of natural like mothering. Maternal instinct. Yes. And a lot of us do. And it's one of the beautiful things about us, but it's also one of the things that sometimes can really hinder us because we just want everyone to be happy. We don't want anyone to be upset. I don't want anyone to be offended or not have. I think that (laughs) I've been learning that as I'm building this business is turning off the therapist brain and turning on the business owner brain. And it's like a muscle I'm still training. Oh my God. Like, can I give this answer? And it's like, no, no. Like I set this rate. This rate is fair. I know it's fair. I know it's worth it, but it's crazy to go from you're just there to help and everyone else care the money and the business and the rules. Yes to being the person who's also enforcing rules like, oh, you didn't come to therapy today. Or like, this is the second session in a row that we've showed up to and your child sleeping, you know, things like that. It's like, you're the enforcer now. So it's a different party you got to hone in on to be successful. That is such a good point. But the thing is, it's like, if you don't enforce your boundaries, the whole reason a lot of us, oh, we want to help the kids. But when you put these boundaries in place, it allows you to help the kids to the best of your abilities. If you have a boundary in place so that, first of all, you're not wasting your time, not because you think that, oh, I'm the best. I'm not going to waste my time because I know my skills are valuable. And that slot that your kid was supposed to come to could have been for another kid that I could have helped. That's a boundary I'm setting or a boundary you're going to set because I don't work after this time because I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good mother of my kids. I want to be there mentally and emotionally. In order to do that, I need to turn off my work brain at X time. And you might as well pick what's going to give, because if you don't pick what's going to give, then usually it's our friends and family and our, ourselves. Sanity. Yeah, your sanity. Our mental health. Katie, this is probably the most tangenty, I don't think that's a word, (laughs) episode I've ever recorded on here, but this was 
awesome. <laughs> yes, this was so much fun. Like I was totally not trying to thinking about talking about women in the workforce, but we just did it. I love it. Yeah. We're breaking. Yeah, we're breaking down walls about women's pay and negotiating. We started at contracting, but it's fine. We did. It's, fine. it's all related. It. it is. Okay. So I know you have life to live. You are running. We said you're running a 5k tomorrow. T- 10k. 10K. Oh girl. She doubled yeah. it. Oh my. So I, I got pasta to eat. I like to more like a 1k. They don't, they don't do races for those, but anyways, yeah, well, but I know that you have life to live. You have your 10 K go run tomorrow. But before I let you go, is there any last piece of advice, any final words that you want to give to all of our listeners out there, even with like all the, the fabulous things that we've discussed? My biggest advice, obviously negotiate, 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 do it for all the rest of us. Also Katie from NeuroSpeech solutions. I think this is one of her phrases. Someone might've said it on your podcast previously, but like, just do it scared. That is my motto. I heard it. I think on one of your episodes that is, I tell myself it every day now, just do it scared, do it scared. You'll figure it out. It always works out. You'll figure it out. So if you want to build a business and start a private practice, just do it you'll get there. We're all learning together. And if you don't know the answer, just, you know, ask speech goods because she has the rest of the answers. (laughs) I love you, Katie. You're the best. (laughs) (laughs) This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. I think thank you for having me. Of course. And you know what? I'm going to have you on for part two, like six or seven months. So we can see where you are with your private practice. I like that idea. Yes. After, because at that point, the school year, you have started. I'll have the whole summer. Yes. Yes. No, that'll be great. And you're going to do awesome. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. you. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on and enjoy your 10K tomorrow. And I will see you later. See you later. Have a good night. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to hear more no fluff, getting the dang thing done stuff for myself and other real life SLPs, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com slash speech goods. If you found this content valuable, please share it with others so we can get this message out there. And if you haven't already, join us on Instagram. Handle is at speech goods. See you there.